Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. I'll be beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now skipping down to verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also... You have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Parents, if you have kids and grace kids, they're now dismissed. And as a friendly and gentle reminder, remember to pick them up after the service. Well, in case you slipped in a little bit after the uh, announcements, a really important reminder, this service starting next week will start 15 minutes earlier. It's going to be a 1045 service, so please uh, keep that in mind. I also just want to say it's fun. It's so fun in both services to see uh, familiar faces slip in. I, I will embarrass Laura Lebo back there. He's with us, our missionary Laura Lebo and Kelly Simpson back. Since you're sitting together, I'll call you both out back from your foot injury. It is good to see you all back and a lot of others that I won't embarrass um, just are able for lots of reasons in the world to get back to normal rhythms. It is, it's really sweet to see so many people back. Um, we are picking back up in the series that we're calling Confessional and Missional. We took a pause, we, uh, we hit pause last week to honor Skyler and send Skyler off with his commissioning service. Now we're jumping into what is week two of Confessional and Missional. Week one was defining what it means to be confessional, what it means to be missional, and what it means to be, to be both. So if you haven't heard that, I... I don't do this often, but I do recommend going back and listening to it. The elders, when we talk about this season of church here, uh, we aren't talking about a course correction or anything. We're talking about a next step. We're talking about building mission onto this great confessional foundation that we have here as a church. 
And again, this is going to feel a little different than normal sermons because normally I'm just walking through books of the Bible and and teaching from one passage. But every now and then we jump around a bit and that's what we're going to be doing here. I'm actually going to be teaching from two passages as I'll show you in a minute. If we are going to have something clearly in our sights, then we've got to know what the extremes are. We've got to know kind of what the ground, the, the guardrails are. And, um, you know, I, I'm thinking about moments in my life and ministry where I've entered into terrain that it just smelled funny, just smelled off, not literally. It just, you know, like the, theologically or whatever, it just smelled off. But I didn't have the tools at that time in my life to be able to name it as such. So, you know, not unlike parenting. You know, in parenting, there's a, there's a, a road that I want my kids to walk. And it doesn't mean they're going to make all the same decisions as I do, but they're, they're guardrails. And if I, can, if I can clearly establish the guardrails, there's a better chance that they're going to have, you know, the, they're going to be in the ballpark of thriving on the road of life. And so the same thing is true in church. We want to be able to identify these guardrails that we're never going to hit perfectly. We're always going to sway a little bit, but to identify these guardrails so that we're always going to be in the ballpark of missional and confessional, that intersection between missional and confessional. So when we go to one side or the other, so, so let's say we go to the missional side at the expense of the confession, or we go to the confessional side at the expense of mission, the result is that the church suffers in its fruit. Now, that's, a, that's a thread we're going to continue to follow throughout the course of this sermon. But we're going to look at how exactly the church suffers in its fruit when we go missional at the expense of confessional or confessional at the expense of missional. And we're going to do this by looking at two churches in Revelation 2. We're going to look first at the church in Pergamum and then second at the church in Ephesus to get a little glimpse of these, these, um, these extremes, these guardrails, these ditches on either side of the road. So first, I want to look at this side, what it means to be missional at the expense of the confession, and I want to do that by looking at the church in Pergamum. So to let you know exactly where I'm going, the core of this extreme is inappropriate cultural accommodation, okay? The core of missional at the expense of the confession is inappropriate cultural accommodation. In Revelation 2, you may remember the church in Pergamum. They are in the very heart of pagan worship. Pergamum is the capital of the Roman. It's the Roman capital of the province of Asia, and it would have. It has been known as one of the hardest places to be a Christian because of all that's going on in that city. I mean, the very existence of a Christian church in Pergamum was a testament to the power of Jesus Christ and His Spirit, because this is not a place you would expect a Christian to be able to thrive, much less a community of Christians. But Jesus is clear that there is a problem in Pergamum. The church had been, it had started to be okay with other views in its midst. The, the church, the, it didn't seem like the leadership is holding these views, but they began to be okay with people in the church holding a different sexual ethic. They began to be okay with false teaching creeping into the church. Um, and so well, this is where we'll, we'll pick up this inappropriate cultural accommodation in verse 13 of chapter 2. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Okay, I, mean, I don't know exactly what that means, but this place is bad. <laughs> Satan's throne. 
Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So why is it that this church is allowing these cultural accommodations in their midst? Jesus doesn't tell us exactly, but I, given what we know about Pergamum, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, well, how, that, how else are we going to make it here? <laughs> you know, if we don't bring in some of these aspects of the culture, how are we even going to survive as a church and, and much less grow numerically? I mean, we, 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 we're going to have to accommodate somewhere, Jesus, if you're going to want this thing to work at all. And so I think this is why Jesus is saying, I know where you dwell, He's not, he's saying this in a compassionate way. I know how hard this would be in Pergamum, but you still have to hold to my teaching. My my promise is still good for you. Behold, I will be with you always. I know your city, I know your environment, but you can't stray from my teachings as an excuse to reach people. And so this church has gone to this extreme of missional at the expense of the confession. And there's more love here for context than there is confession. And that's one of the characteristics of being missional at the expense of confessional. There's more love for the context than there is the confession. They have traded the clear teachings of the Bible for cultural accommodations. And so our question, as we're looking at this as a church, is how exactly does this play out today? How do we see in our day the church making the same mistake as the church in Pergamum, and what should we hear Jesus saying to it? So in our day and age, I would say that I see three, I'm going to, this is not the only three, but there are three big ways that the church is doing the same thing as the church in Pergamum. And I'm going to look at the mainline church, the attractional church, and parts of the parachurch. So mainline church. When I say the mainline church, I'm talking about one of the seven historic denominations of the United States of America. So that would include the Presbyterian Church of the USA, the American Baptist, United Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, the United Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Every one of them has had to battle cultural accommodation in their denominations in in almost every area. So the pressure started uh, started coming from Germany in the 1700s, and it really made its way into all of our seminaries in the early 20th century, which is then when you're, you have, take hold in the seminaries, then you have the leaders of the churches propagating all of these types of accommodation. So first, it was they were accommodating um, the thought that really the Bible isn't the inerrant word of God. And so when you don't believe the Bible's the inerrant word of God, you're going to start to let go of things like the miracles. You know, we see in the Bible the sun standing still. We see uh, the Red Sea parting. We see a virgin birth and a resurrection. And we know those things can't happen under natural law, so we, we probably shouldn't hold them in the Bible. So you see that accommodation being made. And then, no surprise, the next accommodation that's made is the exclusivity of Jesus. Because if the Bible is no longer seen as inerrant, then gosh, it would be a lot easier not to say that Jesus is the only way. It would be a lot easier to say that Jesus is a way. And we can accommodate all, you know, this growing, the growing sentiment in our culture. 
And so that obviously is the exact opposite of what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But now in the mainline church, increasingly all views are tolerated except those who say that Jesus is the only way. And then so later, sexual ethics began to change in, in, in the mainline church. And I want to directly, I want to quote my former pastor, J.D. Shaw, when he taught on the church in Pergamum. I thought he brilliantly articulated a, a likely path that they went down to get where they are. And I thought how, how well this applies to us today as well. So he said, this is probably how it happened in Pergamum. A group in the church said, of course, we must obey God, we must follow him, and be faithful to the scriptures, but the scriptures were written in Israel by Jews and for Jews, and we need to take that into account. We are Greek and Roman Gentiles, we are believers in Jesus, but we are different from those folks in Israel. We think what the Bible says about, we think what the Bible says about sex is culturally bound. Those teachings were never meant to apply to all people at all times, and if the Jewish writers of the scriptures knew what life was like in Pergamum, well, they would have never said that sex was only to be had between a man and woman inside of marriage. There are too many temptations in Pergamum, too many temple prostitutes, too many available women, so we need to reinterpret the scriptures in light of our time and place and give ourselves a break. After all, we know in our hearts we belong to Jesus. I thought that was a brilliant conjecture of how the church in Pergamum got to where they are, and I think it aligns with so much that we hear in many parts of our culture, including the mainline denomination, all of which have since splintered or drifted completely. So you see things now on their websites like, we do missions in practical ways. I mean, you know what that's really saying, don't you? Like, we're going to go out and meet physical needs, but there's no gospel in, in our missions. We do missions in practical ways. And so this is a love of context over confession. And I think Jesus would have the same words to the mainline church as he did to the church in Pergamum. He would say, repent. Secondly, the attractional church. The attractional church is actually very different because uh, they are by and large orthodox. They, they do embrace the miracles. They don't reject largely the exclusivity of, of Jesus. But in their desire to attract people into the building, they stop saying things that might be offensive. They stop saying things that won't attract people into the front door. So it isn't that they don't believe the Bible. It's that they're not teaching all of it because they don't want to scare people off. And so in their defense... I do think they want the gospel to go forward. I, I really do. But it, their, their unwillingness to teach the full counsel of God creates this low spiritual ceiling that people can't grow beyond. And so they teach things either consciously or subconsciously or directly or indirectly that worship, it isn't actually, the main point of worship isn't to help people grow, it's to get people in the door. That's the point. The design is to attract people. And if the design of worship is to attract people, then context necessarily becomes more important than confession. So just, here's one, one thing we can, I mean, every 10 years there's something new that adds to this. But in the past 10 years, we've seen, we've seen churches beginning to hire online pastors, which I do believe is kind of an oxymoron. But the, 
I do believe their, their hope is good. I mean, I think they, they're thinking we can use technology and social media and all this to be able to engage more people. And, and that statement in and of itself isn't a sinful statement. But what happens is it's just one more way we're lowering the ceiling. We're lowering the bar by really now we don't think that we're not going to really endorse embodied worship. You know, so we're taking that requirement out and then just making it easier and easier and easier for people to be engaged. And, and I do think more people are engaged and I think more people are getting what they want, but they're not getting what we need. They, they the attractional church, they desire to be this entry point back into the church or into the church for the first time but what they're really becoming is the back door the last stop of people on their way out of the church because they're not getting what christians all christians need especially christians in increasingly hostile environments what would you think of me if i got my kids really excited about laser tag or what would you think if Skylar and Ben decided what they wanted for the youth, they, they, they were the 6th grade to the 12th grade students, they wanted them to get really excited about laser tag. So they had a laser tag party, they made it fun, they had them in there bite their friends, they showed them how to use the laser tag guns, they, and they gave them their own guns, and then sent them into a real battle. That's, I think, ultimately what's happening in many of the attractional churches. We're making it fun but we're not equipping Christians for the battle that we are really walking into and it harms people. They would do well, these churches, to hear Jesus' voice, Jesus' voice to the church in Pergamum saying, I know where you dwell. And Jesus' statement, it's not like a threatening, I know where you live kind of statement. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I get it. I, I know where you dwell. I know what's going on there. But stay with me. Stay with the full counsel of God. And there is where you will have all the promises that God has for you. And then thirdly, you have some parts of the parachurch. And I, and I say some parts to the, of the parachurch because I fundamentally believe the parachurch is a good thing. Much of our worship last week involved RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, a parachurch organization. I've given a lot of my life to parachurch organizations. Um, I have an article, if you want to read it, it's, on the, it's an older one on the Nine Marks website about contending for the need of the parachurch in, in, with the church today. Parachurch means alongside the church. So what we need is a parachurch that is deeply connected to the church. So my first four years in ministry, almost all of you know this, was in Pisa, Italy. And I'm very thankful for what God did in me during those four years. God uh, grew my faith, grew me in evangelism, in knowledge of the Bible, in personal holiness. He introduced me to people who would become dear friends and influential people in my life. He introduced me to my wife. All four years are worth it just for that right there. And so he did a lot in me, but he did very little through me in those years. And so we, as a ministry, in those four years, Dozens and dozens of Americans gave at least a full year of their life to reaching Italian students. And we were able to engage hundreds, maybe more than a thousand students, engage them, share the gospel with them. And they all had some access to the gospel, hundreds if not a thousand people. But we look back now, and none of us that I'm aware of can see a single person, that spiritually, single Italian that spiritually benefited from our work there. And so we 
we kind of when we talk, we realized what we were doing there, it was highly missional. It was very missional. I mean, we were engaging, we were connecting, we we're learning the language, but there was no church. There was no church connection at all. So, I mean, the church is built on the confession of Peter. So this was missional at the expense of confessional. We didn't have a church, in, there's no church in Pisa. There is now an Acts 29 church in Pisa, but there was no church. So we had no church to connect these people to, no one, no Italian believers to walk with them after we left, and we see what happened. But I, I don't, in saying that, I don't want you to hear that I'm down on Campus Crusade for Christ, which is who I worked with, because I got to see the other end of that as well. We, Angela and I got to go back to southern Italy in 2012 alongside a, a church plant from members of this church. And it's funny, because at that time I didn't even know about this church, and I'm, I'm, we're working on a church plant together in southern Italy. But we got to see, I, I was, we were with crew, and we had, uh, we had about 14 people with us. Jonathan Perdome was on that team, wherever you're sitting, there you are. And so we got to see the parachurch and the church work together, and now, just eight years later, there is a church there that is 100% Italian-led. There's not an American in the mix, to my knowledge, anymore. There is a church there. At my former church, every member, sorry, every staff person and intern of crew uh, was a member at Grace Bible Church, our church. And I can tell you the church benefited tremendously from their parachurch involvement with us, and I think their ministry benefited from it as well. So I'm not down on these parachurch ministries. I'm just saying that... that you can go so missional that you let go of the church, the very thing that God has given us to carry out the Great Commission. And so for this group, I think they would do well to hear Jesus' words to the churches in Revelation. Jesus is speaking to churches. So I began this by saying that if we go to either extreme, this, what happens is we suffer in fruit. So if we go to this extreme, we're, we're going missional at the expense of confessional, the, we, we suffer in the quality of fruit. Okay? There's no quantity suffering here because lots of people are engaged, but the quality of fruit is suppressed when we get to this, this side, this extreme. We may see hundreds or thousands of people being, being engaged, but if the Bible is not being taught and people are not connected to a church, the fruit can only grow so much because the roots can only go so, so deep. So that's what it looks like to drift more to the missional side at the expense of the confession. Now... We're going to move from the church in Pergamum over to the church in Ephesus and look at what it looks like to drift over to the confessional side at the expense of the missional. All right, so remember I said that the heart of the more at the heart of the more missional church is a love of context over confession. Over here at the heart of the more confessional church at the expense of the mission is a love of content over context. The love of content over context. So the Ephesian church is an interesting church. We know as much or more about this church than any other church in the Bible because there's so much written about it or to it. We have Luke in Acts records the beginnings of this church. We have Paul writing to the Ephesians. We have John recording these words that we're looking at from Jesus about this church. We know that this, the, the beginnings of the Ephesian church was every church planter's dream. I mean, they went in and... 
massive numbers of people are converted. The, the miracles and the healings that are going on are so significant that the itinerant Jewish exorcists <laughs> decide that they want us to try to start doing things, their thing, in Jesus' name because they saw the power in Jesus' name. Now, that did not go well for them at all. But they were, the fact that they were trying tells you like the, the impact that the name of Jesus is having on this community. It actually, the, the impact of Jesus in Ephesus changed the whole economy. People were burning their expensive dark arts books. Uh, they weren't giving money to idols that they had historically given to. And the economy changes so much that riots break out. Luke goes so not yeah Luke goes so far in Acts to say that there was a point where every person in the city had heard the name of Jesus. I mean that is, that is a major entrance into a city. <laughs> That's a good good church plan. Ephesus was known as a fortress of doctrine. We have uh, there's a, one letter between some church fathers where one person says refers to Ephesus as a place where heresy will never thrive for long. But Again, there's a problem. It seems the zeal for doctrine was stronger than their zeal for Jesus and Jesus' people. So I'm going to start reading at verse 2 in Revelation chapter 2 and just read 2 through 4. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So when a church gets more excited about being right than, than reaching hearts, we've shifted over to this extreme of being confessional at the expense of the mission. When a church has more zeal for right doctrine than zeal for telling people about Jesus Christ, that church is still confessional, but missional has left the building. One commentator said about the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church had gone from being propagators of Jesus' love to being custodians of sound doctrine and proper decorum. That's not a compliment. And so you see that the intersection of mission and confession is this perfect intersection of mind and of heart. And so when this happens, when a church begins to drift this direction, walls begin to go up. The church begins to impose walls around us. We no longer see ourselves as sent into the world to bring the message of Jesus. We begin to see ourselves as protectors of good doctrine. So that, that's, that's not an offensive posturing, that's a defensive posturing. So we begin, when, we, when we begin to think of ourselves as fundamentally a protector of good doctrine, it's going to change us at the heart level. It's going to affect our hearts. If the love of Jesus and, Jesus and the people who Jesus is committed to redeeming is toppled by a love for right doctrine, that creates a prideful church. And this is really logical. I mean, if you think about it, when a church loses its first love, God, it then loses its, its supernatural love of neighbor, and it's very easy for just a, a prideful love of being right to slip in. And so prideful churches like this begin to elevate secondary and tertiary issues higher than they should be. Prideful churches are primarily concerned with the walls between us and the world. And so then, instead of being sent into the world, we begin to be threatened by things of the world. We may even be threatened by Christians who have different views than us. 
And do we know what happens to prideful churches? They die. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus is threatening here in verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And it seems like that's what happened. I mean, there is no more church in Ephesus. It doesn't exist anymore. And I don't know if it's directly related to that or not, but if Jesus is not afraid to remove the lampstand of the church in Ephesus, no church should think that they're off limits. So, when we get on this side, remember we're talking about fruit, this side over here doesn't suffer in quantity of fruit, suffers in quality of fruit. When we get over here, there is more of a, because you have the doctrine, the quality is better than over there, but the quantity is just not there. Because we built all these walls between us and the world that we are always going to be limited in the quantity of fruit that we are going to see in our engagement with this world. Any church that flies a specific doctrinal flag higher than the Jesus flag will not survive. At the intersection of confession and mission, the thing that flourishes most is love. I mean, this is what Paul is talking about when he, I mean, really let these words in 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul's talking about love, hit you. How important love is. It's more important than all these other great things he's going to name. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, those are huge things, faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but I have not love, I gain nothing. Biblical love is one that holds tight to Jesus and everything that he teaches, but who is willing to let loose our preferences. Biblical love welcomes diversity and discomfort and awkwardness. Biblical love sacrifices comfort and time and energy for other people that they, may, that they might know Jesus. That's the love the Ephesian church had at first. And that's the love that should mark every church that worships Jesus Christ. Lest they lose their lampstand. I said in the beginning of the series that we are a confessional church. We are a confessional church and we're endeavoring to build on that confession mission. We have, I don't think we've ever been in either extreme. We've, we've historically been here. We've historically trended a little bit this way. And that's okay. It's okay to acknowledge that's okay for a season because by God's grace, we get to build on a sure foundation. I mean, I am so thankful for the men and women who have labored for decades here to build this great foundation that we get to build on, who laid the foundation that we get to build on. I mean, it's, it, for me, it's both, uh, I'm both, counted a privilege and a little bit intimidating to be a pastor of a church that was planted on Reformed Theological Seminary campus. That, that men have taught here like R.C. Sproul and Ligon Duncan and Richard Pratt and Roger Nicole and Kurt Heffelfinger. That, that's an intimidating group to follow. But we, all that contributes to us having an incredible foundation to be able to build on. 
So, as we talk about building on that good foundation, I want to suggest three very practical questions we should all ask ourselves. And the goal is saying we're here, how do we get here? First question, what shapes your worldview more? The people you engage with or the pages that you visit? If your worldview is informed more by pages, and that could be pages of a book or pages in social media, then real people, your heart will grow cold to the people you are called to reach. I think this is one of the big reasons that we are so divided these days. It is easy to sit behind a computer a computer wall, and read all these articles about the people that you disagree with. And it's much harder to actually do the heavy lifting of getting to know the people that you disagree with. And when we don't do this heavy lifting of getting to know the people we disagree with, our hearts are going to grow cold toward them. And that's not what Jesus wants. So here's a, 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 almost like a silly example, but, it's, but it, it, it communicates what I'm wanting to say. So Let's take the issue of baptism. Not, not really divisive, the way so many other issues are in our world right now. But, so I was a, a Baptist student on, at Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm actually the only Baptist, official at Baptist MDiv ever given out by RTS. They opened this program, I did it, and they quickly shut it. <laughs> maybe, maybe they shut it because of me, I don't know. But, I was the minority view on baptism. I, I just, most of them were infant, paedo-baptist is the, the term. Most of them believe you should, you should baptize babies. But I was not in an environment where I'm only reading books about those paedo-baptists. I was in an environment where I was, I was with them, knowing them. And because of that, two things happened. One, I actually became more sure of my view. <laughs> but two, I really felt like I understood and cared for these people. I, and they weren't any kind of bad guys because they, I, it wasn't just articles written about them. I was able to engage with them. And I think that principle can be true of all the other more divisive issues of our day. Pages make us more sure of our views, but they won't make us more understanding of other views, and they will make our hearts grow cold. Second question. Does your content intersect with your context? So if we go back to the missional only, we see context driving the content. Context is king over here. That's bad. But on the other side, content stays behind a wall. Content is not intersecting with the context in, in a helpful way. So I have a friend who I would consider a Christian leader in his city. And there was a, a pastor who went to him. And th this pastor was pastoring a declining church. And he said, yeah, help me understand why... My church is not only declining in number, we're, we're, we're just missing the younger generation completely. And my friend, he, he's a fairly direct communicator, but he's, he's a nice guy, so hear, hear, hear love in this very direct response. But he said, the answer is because your church isn't giving them helpful biblical answers to the questions that they are asking. And then he said, your church doesn't understand the culture they live in enough to be able to give them helpful answers from the Bible. We as a church are called to become students of the world. We are called to become experts in our knowledge of the world. Not changed by the world in any kind of way, not, I mean, not, not sinfully, 
but we are to be experts in the world. We should be able to exegete our culture the way that we exegete our Bibles because there is the intersection of missional and confessional. At both extremes, this extreme and this extreme, fundamentally the church is creating an environment where we're, we're just waiting on the world to walk in those doors. That, that's happening here and it happens all the way over here as well. But a church that is both confessional and missional is going to be is going to break down the walls that the world has built. So it, it isn't us that build these walls between the, earth, the world and us. The world is the one that's building walls. So we don't need to add any walls. A confessional missional church is breaking those walls down because we know we are sent into the world, John 17, the way that Jesus was sent into the world. And I think this is one of the reasons that our church has been so successful with, with young New Christians at UCF or RTS or wherever, we've done really well with that group, but why we've been fairly not good, I don't know, we, we haven't been as strong with people who don't know Jesus. And we, this is just an area I think we can grow in our content intersecting our context. Third and last, in our desire to enter into and engage this world, are we listening more than we're speaking? This is something I, I need to grow in for what it's worth. Are we listening more than we're speaking? Because in the, in the 20th century, I, I just think because the, the, the soil was so, so fertile, our first foot forward could just be speaking about Jesus. Our first, first foot forward could be you know, some tool like the four laws or the Roman roads or an apologetic ministry of Lee Strobel or something like that. We could just go in speaking. That's, I don't find that to work as much anymore. I'm not saying that God can't or doesn't somewhere, but increasingly our first foot forward has to be listening before we speak. Listen and get to know the people that we're trying to reach. Understand their hurts and their hopes, their, their idols. What, what are they experiencing and how can we connect them to Jesus? Because all of evangelism is essentially making an, an introduction. And we make the best introductions when we know both parties. I mean, if I know two people, let's take you all, I know how to introduce you if you didn't already know each other in a way where I can weave in your stories and your story and your interests in a way that it's gonna, I hope, naturally draw you to each other and make my friends friends. And it's the same thing with Jesus. We have to know both parties. We need to know the lost world and understand them and to do that, we have to listen. But we also have to know Jesus. We, 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 it's not just knowing the world, it's knowing Jesus. It's mission and confession at the same time. Because this basically all boils down to this. Context is not king. Confession is not king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And when Jesus is king of our hearts, that's where this intersection is between mission and confession because only Jesus knows both. Only Jesus embodied both. Only Jesus is both. I mean, Jesus... No one has ever known and embodied the word of God more than Jesus. No one on the same token has ever engaged and pursued the world the way that Jesus has. He endured all the pain of the sinful world without ever sinning himself. He was fully sent, yet sinless. Even to the point that he would choose to go all the way to the cross and endure the wrath of God on our sake, a sinless man taking on the wrath of God that we might be given the righteousness that he earned. So if we want to step into the calling 
that God has given us as a church to be missional and confessional, then we have to know Jesus. Not just know about Jesus, not just know things about Jesus, not just know the right doctrines. We must know Jesus. We need to be daily repenting of our sin, turning to the Holy Spirit, walking in his power. If we are going to do anything for Jesus, the first step is knowing Jesus. And then I think everything else just becomes a little more clear and a little easier. And certainly a lot more fruitful. Let's pray. God, we thank you. The call that you give, the starting line, is to delight in you daily. Delight in you. May that be true of us, that we would delight in your mercy and your grace and your love and that we would be conformed in the image of your son in a way that we would naturally exude that same kind of mercy and love to the world around us and that they would be compelled by it and drawn to you by it. Would that be true today? Would you draw us closer and send us further? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.